Hello everyone and welcome to That Time When, the comedy history podcast where we tell you about strange things that happen in history. I am your host this week, Barnaby King, and joining me as ever is my co-host, Amelia Edwards. Hello. Hello. Well. Yes? I am a little bit out of it on (laughs) painkillers. Woo! Prescription medication for the win. Indeed. Actually, this is over-the-counter medication. It is, yeah, yeah. But should it be? We'll discuss today. No, that's not what we're going to discuss at all. I just wanted to say that up front in case I do that and kind of forget what I'm talking about. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So if there's a lot more weird inflections in this podcast, that is why. Perhaps you may be asking yourself, you shouldn't have hosted this week. But more fool you, I say, because (laughs) I have an excellent episode in store. That sentence made no sense, but I get what you mean. (laughs) Ah, some magic of painkillers. Anyway, this week I am going to take us to 14th century France. Ooh! And the reign of Charles VI, known first as Charles the Beloved. Oh, that's nice. I know. I take it people liked him. They did for a while. Okay. He later had another nickname. (laughs) Charles the (laughs) Behated. No, we'll get to that though. Okay. Uh, he was very young when he was crowned King of France. He was 12 years old. Oh, that's not going to go well. It is not, no. That was in 1380, so it's during the Hundred Years' War. Great. Turbulent time for France and England. Mm-hmm. And of course, that means that as a boy king, he can't really rule. Yeah. The age of royal majority at the time was 14. <sighs> Jesus, all right. Which, yeah, still very low. I would not trust a 14-year-old to, you know, make heavy decisions about the war in the country. Uh, I mean, the thing was that they had military generals who were about 16 at this point. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the Black Prince used to go, like, started all his battles at 16. Yeah, I just... Can you it's ima- mad, isn't it? It's I'm just, mad. Yeah, I'm imagining them like sort of today's teenagers. Mm-hmm. Just very petulant. I mean, they were petulant, though. <laughs> we know true. medieval people were very petulant. Yeah, that's true. Presumably because they were all about 12. Yeah. <laughs> and they had their own form of TikTok, which was on parchment. <laughs> <laughs> the dancers were very slow. <laughs> yes, it was like a flip book. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing, yes. Well, because of this, obviously, there was a regent appointed. Yep, sounds good. And this was actually, this regency was held by a total of four people. Oh dear. Over the course of the regency. Oh dear. All of them were the uncles to King Charles VI. This sounds really familiar to a lot of English history. Yeah? Yes. Okay. Well, just um, basically the whole of the Wars of the Roses was various uncles ruling right. over various bits of land yeah. all the time. Did that go well? No. No, it didn't go well here either. This is how we had the princes and the tower. Yeah, yeah. So this was not great. The uncles were incredibly selfish. Mm -hmm. They used their power to raise a bunch of taxes in order to fund their own agendas, which were not only counter to the crown, but counter to each other as well. Of course they were. So as they had a sort of hot seating arrangement, each time (laughs) one of them was in power, they inevitably annoyed all the others yeah sounds sounds likely one thing they did want though all agree on though was they didn't want to give up power no 
So they managed to extend the regency until Charles VI was 21. Holy crap. Okay. is a ridiculous time, like length of time for a regency. Yeah. But they were pretty much in control. They'd ousted a lot of the other people who had power. So they were pretty much in charge. It was only thanks to uh, Charles VI getting, you know, rightly annoyed that he wasn't (laughs) properly king. And also the fact that um, his father's previous advisors, a group known as the Marmosets. No. Yes. (laughs) Or Marmousset, perhaps. But it does mean Marmoset. Aren't those a type of monkey? They are, yes. <laughs> did they even know about marmosets in those days? Apparently they did, because apparently it was also a kind of slang term for the English at that point. Because we're so small. I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> or I, this was just what I read. I didn't, I didn't find out why. I probably should have done, but, you we're know. We're a bit grabby, I guess. <laughs> yes, maybe. Very small. Well, they, that was the sort of nickname given to the group of advisors who had worked for Charles V. Why? I have no idea. Okay. Because they were they, very fluffy. It might be. They, they were part English. Oh, perhaps. Peut-être. Indeed. <laughs> well, anyway, they helped Charles VI grab power back from his uncles Mm -hmm. and in return Charles VI almost immediately reinstated them and gave them back the power that the uncles had taken away yeah this was a really good move oh okay the marmosets were well liked in court and by the public and they were sensible they introduced a period of stability, oh. which led to Charles VI being known as Charles the Beloved. Oh, I see. We we love Charles the Beloved because he does not commit wars yeah. or taxes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was still wars going on because, yeah. you know, Hundred Years' War. But Yeah, but the Hundred Years' War had some really chill points in it. That's true. And I think this was an okay moment for the time being Mm. because uh later on in his reign there are attempts to you know end the hundred years war yeah (laughs) so it would have been the 50 years war but hey ho i mean given that the hundred years war was actually 116 years well yes maybe it would have been the 48 years war or something well possibly uh but anyway so things are looking all right okay like charles the sixth doesn't seem like he was anything particularly special as a king he just really know, knew how to delegate good so his advisors were making some really good ideas and people were pretty happy okay everything looked stable good but there was a problem what because while france was stable the king was not ah from his 20s charles VI began displaying symptoms of psychosis ah these became severe enough that eventually he was known as Charles the Mad. Oh dear. Yeah. Poor Charles. Yeah. So the first sort of major appearance of this uh, psychosis was in 1392. Charles's friend, Olivier de Clisson, was nearly murdered. Okay. And the would-be assassin, Pierre de Crayon, fled to Brittany. Right. The Duke of Brittany refused to give up Pierre to the crown. Well, that's not on. Yeah. So Charles, under the influence of an insatiable fury, right. prepared a military expedition to go to Brittany in July. 
The king was reported as being frantic, impatient with the slow progress, and his speech became slurred and disconnected when he tried to talk to his troops. It sounds like he's just very stressed. I mean, yeah. Maybe on pain medication. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, quite possibly. (laughs) Thank you. Well, while travelling through Le Mans Forest, a barefoot leper approached the company. Right. He was shouting that the king should turn back, that he had been betrayed. What? Yeah. Okay. The leper was turned away. Mm. Basically, they thought, this guy's mad. Yeah. But he kept following the company for about half an hour, continuing to shout that the king had been betrayed. I think I'd be rattled by that. I would too. And it sounds like this was not a great time because (laughs) it was the height of the July heat. Oh, God. And they emerged from the forest at noon. Oh, God. So it was incredibly hot. One of the king's pages, who was completely exhausted by the heat at this point, dropped the lance he was carrying. Oh, no. Which clanged on a helmet. Oh, no. The king, hearing the noise, screamed, Forward against the traitors! They wish to deliver me to the enemy! He spurred his horse and attacked his own men. Oh God. He killed one of his knights and several other men before one of the chamberlains managed to drag him from his horse. He fell down and fell into a coma, which lasted not that long, mm. but long enough that they decided that it was best for him to be taken away to a castle with like good air and pleasant surroundings so that he could rest. Right, okay. So they went, he's had a bit of a wobble. Yeah. We're going to take him to the seaside. Yeah. Or similar. Yeah. Okay. So this was the first major episode of his psychosis, and it was definitely not the last. In 1393, he began to experience periods of amnesia. Okay. He forgot who he was and that he was king. And when his wife saw him, he didn't know who she was and actually told one of his servants to give the woman what she needs before sending her away. Oh, that's so sad. It is very sad. In either 1395 or 96, he had a period where he believed he was St. George and claimed that his coat of arms was a lion with a sword through it. He remembered all his household staff during this time, but did forget his wife and children. Okay. Um, isn't it a bit embarrassing to believe that you're St. George when it's the Hundred Years' War with England? Yeah, a little bit. Like, Just a little bit. I don't know who the patron <laughs> saint of France is, but you'd probably want that one. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't know who it is. Um, mm. I know that... The French royal family used to believe very heavily in St. Martin. And there is also Saint Brioche, (laughs) the patron saint of buttery bread. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anyway, continuing along, Charles VI would sometimes take to running wildly through his Parisian house whilst howling like a wolf. I mean, that just sounds like a good time. Yes, but this did lead to the staff having to wall off various entrances because otherwise he would escape and possibly hurt himself in the streets. Okay. Pope Pius II made uh, an observation of an occasion where he met Charles and Charles believed that he was made of glass. I have heard of this. Yeah. I think people might have done. It's one of those things that you, like... It's a horrible histories fact. Yes, it is, isn't it? Well, yes, for a while, Charles VI believed that he was made of glass Mm -hmm. and that if people touched him, he might shatter. Didn't he put 
rods in his clothes or he something. He did indeed. As a preventative measure, he ordered iron rods should be sewn into his clothing to help keep him together if he should shatter. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. He also... Now, I don't know if this is a symptom of madness because this is something that happened a lot around this period. Okay. In 1394, he expelled all the Jews from France. Yeah, I don't think that's a symptom of madness. I think that's a symptom of anti-Semitism or being broke. Yeah, probably a little bit of both. I mean, the reason I've put it in here is just because while there was definitely, you know, public anger towards the Jews because Mm -hmm. of anti-Semitism and financial reasons, it does kind of seem to come out of nowhere. Okay. Like, it wasn't so serious a problem. I don't know if it's just good old-fashioned anti-Semitism madness or yeah who knows i see what you mean in england i think the reason why the jews got expelled was like there had been anti-semitism mm. but then the king took advantage of that because he was really in debt yeah and all of the people he was in debt to were jewish moneylenders so actually saying jewish people aren't allowed to be in the uk is you know a good move i mean this is also what happened in france but it seems that I I don't know if the king specifically was in debt to Mm. any particular people, but he did decree that, you know, all those debts were now cleared. Right. So possibly, who knows? It's just that really sad. Oh, God, it's so dangerous to be Jewish in medieval England, Europe, anywhere, really. Yeah, and any time, really. Yeah, really. (laughs) But one of the most notable events of Charles VI's madness, in a way, not entirely his fault. Okay. And it is probably the one that contributed the most to the fact that Charles' wife, Isabeau, eventually formed a regency council to take over from him. Right. And this is the incident known as the Bal de Sauvage. Okay. Or the Ball of the Wild Men. Ooh. And later, it had another name, which I'll tell you about later. Ooh. Now, this actually happened pretty early on. A lot of his other sort of madness stuff, he had kind of been relieved of his duties at that point. Right. He just leaned into it. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Well, this was one of the celebrations that went on around this period, because in order to keep the king occupied and kind of shield him from having to actually, you know, do any governing and ruling and working, yeah, they the court frequently held, like, lavish celebrations so that he could okay. focus on that rather than having to actually make big decisions. I mean, that's a pretty smart move, I'd say. It is. And it was kind of useful, actually, because... <laughs> This is a bit sad. Yeah. The public still loved him, despite all these extravagant parties and that, Mm -hmm. because they blamed his wife for it. Oh, of course they did. Because she was a tricksy Bavarian woman. Ugh, those Bavarians. Yeah. So they were basically (laughs) like, God, it's all her fault. She's, you know, forcing the king to throw all these lavish parties. And it's like, kind of, but... It's, Not in the way you think. Yeah, exactly. And we know that the Bavarians are super lavish. <laughs> exactly. Common stereotype. Oh, yes. You, you always hear about it. Well, on the 28th of January, 1393, the ball was held actually by Isabeau in mm-hmm. order to celebrate the remarriage of a lady-in-waiting known as Catherine de Fastaverin. Nice. The woman was a widow, and at the time, the remarriage of a widow 
had a special sort of celebration. Okay. Because you couldn't have a regular wedding ceremony because Christian doctrine at the time didn't really allow for remarriage. All right. Because there was the idea that it went beyond death. Like it was an immortal soul thing. Oh, okay. So... It was kind of like a, we can't celebrate with a proper wedding, but we're going to do something. So they would have a party called a Sharavari. Okay. Which was a debauched and somewhat mocking affair. Right. So is is there kind of an acknowledgement that if you're getting remarried, you've already kind of fulfilled your duty to God and yeah. whatever by getting married the first time. And this time it's clearly just for you. Yeah, I think so. Right. It, it's possible that it's genuinely a bit like, uh, uh you're a widow. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who knows? Ha <laughs> your husband died. I know, right? Hilarious. <laughs> but generally these celebrations would be pretty wild. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some cases, obscene. Great, great. The actual, the word Sharavari gets used later on, actually in American history as well, with a slightly different meaning. Uh, you will have heard the term, and I we'll tell it to our have. listeners. Uh, well, I'm going to tell you the term. Go on. Rough music. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So rough music for our listeners is, God, how to put it? It's kind of a... It's a judgment from the local community, isn't it? Yeah. It's like when the village all gathers together because someone has done something bad and they are going to dispense justice. Yeah. It's a kind of mob justice. Yeah. It's not the same as a lynching. No. But it's basically they play the rough music outside of someone's house until they're basically driven out. Yeah. So you can kind of tell that a Sharavari, since it became that, it was yeah. not going to be, you know, a nice, a nice quiet no, party it to begin with. Bacchanalian. It is indeed. In fact, I've written down here that it is Bacchanalian. Nice. <laughs> uh, we're on the same wavelength. We just really love our Greek yeah. mythology. Well, a suggestion was made that as part of the entertainment, six dancers would be dressed up as wild men and perform a mad and somewhat obscene dance. Great. They would be disguised in their costumes and partygoers would have to guess who they were. Okay, that's reasonably common in a masked ball. Yeah. The dancers were actually sewn into the costumes so they couldn't be easily taken off. Right. And these costumes were made of linen soaked with resin and covered with flax to create shaggy, wild appearances. I'm worried they're going to set on fire by accident. Well, you're right. There, There is a possibility that that is a fire hazard. So yeah. they actually ordered that no torches should oh, be lit okay. in the hall in order to prevent this. So oh, okay. They've thought about that. They've thought about this. Right. Especially because one of the dancers is the king. Yeah, okay. Yeah. We don't know exactly why he became one of the dancers, whether or not it was something he wanted or Mm. it was suggested. We don't know. This was something apparently Henry VIII used to do all the time. Oh, really? Uh, Yeah, because they had masked balls, like where you dress up as people and you're supposed to kind of not know who anyone is. Mm -hmm. Um, But apparently, like, Henry VIII was eight... Sorry, Henry VIII was six foot tall. Right. Everyone always knew it was him. He had bright red hair. (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, if you're going to be the tallest guy, then it's going to be pretty clear that, you know, the the one looming over everyone else is the king. The one who's also mysteriously always playing... Robin Hood or (laughs) 
King Arthur or whoever as well. Oh, wow. So blatant. Yeah. (laughs) Well, the dance began and the dancers acted like wolves, shouting obscenities at the guests and inviting them to guess who they were. (laughs) Sounds like a right laugh. I mean, I love that you said they acted like wolves, shouting obscenities at the guests. I'm like... Have you ever heard wolves shouting <laughs> obscenities? I mean, wolves are the rudest animals. Like, yeah. Whenever you wander around, they're just like... F*** off! <laughs> Your shit! <laughs> well, I think they danced around like wolves, then shouted obscenities at people, and then like, guess who I am? <laughs> which, to which I think the correct response is an absolute dick. Yeah. <laughs> well... Things were going pretty well until the doors opened. Okay. And in walked the king's younger brother, the Duke of Orléans, Uh. and one of the Duke's friends. Now, we love the Duke of Orléans because I've been talking about the Duke of Orléans recently when I talked about the Chevalier. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. De Saint-Georges. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, this Duke of Orléans Mm -hmm. had a bit of a reputation. He was not popular in the court and especially amongst the people. Okay. Because a few years prior, he had a accusation leveled against him of sorcery. Oh, wow. Because he had hired an apostate monk mm-hmm. to imbue a dagger, a sword, and a ring with demonic magic. I mean, who hasn't? Yeah, right? <laughs> Just, I love it. It's like, oh, maybe, maybe he did an act of witchcraft. Yes, he did. Yes. He 100%. He 100% tried very hard. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, I I love hired an apostate monk as well. It's like, you are really going all in with this, aren't you? I mean, that's very medieval, is thinking that monks and nuns are really good at demonic energies. Yeah. Like, I don't know why, but they constantly think that's the case. As soon as they go to the bad, they're filled with demon power. I mean, in. Le d'Arthur, even the good nuns are just really good at necromancy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should keep an eye on them in the modern day. Yeah. I wonder what subtle ways they're influencing the world. Hmm. Hmm. Well, anyway, the real problem was that the Duke of Orleans had turned up, he was drunk, he was rowdy. He was surrounded by demons. Well, no, but he was carrying a flaming torch. Oh, no! There are a couple of versions of what happened next. The one that I think is probably correct is that he got close to one of the dancers because yeah. he wanted to have a look and see who they were. Yeah. And then a stray spark yeah. from the torch yeah. caught light yep. to the costume. Yeah. The costume went up immediately. Of course it did. And spread to the other dancers. Oh, God. <laughs> Isabeau, knowing that one of the dancers was her husband, yeah. the king immediately fainted. Oh, oh, I love it. Yeah. Very traditional. I was worried you were going to be like, ripped off all their clothes. No, no. People did try to rip the clothes off. Apparently, this did not help. Uh, of the six dancers, four caught fire. Oh my God. Two of them burned to death. Yep. And another two uh, survived but died of their injuries days later. Yeah. And that was partly because people did try to cut them out of their costumes, which meant that they got stabbed as well. Oh, no. (laughs) Of course. There weren't scissors in those days. Yeah. 
Fortunately, before the Duke had entered, the King had actually moved away from the rest of the dancers in order to speak to his 15-year-old aunt, Joan, Duchess of Berry. Great. When the fire broke out, Joan, just the most quick-thinking, yeah. <laughs> hoiked up her voluminous skirt <laughs> and covered the King with it. I love Joan. She's great. I mean... Well done, Joan. Well done, Joan, and her voluminous skirt. Good 15-year-old girl thoughts there. (laughs) One of the other dancers managed to flee from the flames and jumped into a vat of wine (laughs) and refused to leave until all the flames were properly extinguished, which I think is quite sensible. Yes. And also, you can have a great time in that vat of wine. (laughs) That's absolutely legend. Yeah. So the whole debacle became known... Not as the Bal de Sauvage, but the Bal de Ardon. Okay. Which apparently means the ball of the burning men. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. There was public outcry because of this, because mm-hmm. the public, who still really liked their king, believed that the court had been reckless and put him in danger. I mean, they couldn't they have just used less flammable clothes? I mean, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they were just like, uh, we tried making it with this less flammable stuff, but it was it's it's not wild looking enough. And they could have just used furs. They could have used furs, and then one of them comes along and is like, I've got this perfect idea. We can make this costume. It's completely fireproof. It's made of this really safe substance called asbestos. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. This is France. This is l'asbestos. Yeah, very good. Well, the court, who were really worried that the outcry was enough to actually cause revolt, Mm. took part in an apologetic royal procession to Notre Dame. (laughs) Amazing. They made penance there, and on the way, the king rode on a horse with his uncles, who were still important members of court and still not popular with the people, were walking in humility before him. Love it. Duke Orléans, who was generally considered the most at fault because you know he He was the one who brought a torch in he did indeed (laughs) he donated money for the building of a chapel at a celestine monastery in order to you know pay his penance right does that make up for attempting to summon demons or whatever well i think it was more about accidentally killing (laughs) the king or was it accidental because one of the other stories about the ball is that the duke of orleans walked in and threw the flaming torch at one of the guests it's believed possibly that Mm. he was attempting to commit regicide so that he could ascend to the throne and then he would become a powerful demon king who this believes is... that he would become a powerful de- demon king? Is that a historian suggesting that? No, I'm just making that bit up. Because okay. to be honest, he wouldn't have become king anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wouldn't he? Well, king had children. Oh, right, yeah. I don't Actually, I don't know if he had any sons, so maybe, but uh, I, I think it's unlikely. It's probably better to be the Duke of Orléans because you get to have all of the cash and all the fun without having to worry about actually being the king. Yeah, that's true. And going insane. Yeah. Although, to be fair, I think at this point, Charles VI, like, he's, he's losing out on his royal duties anyway, so yeah, he just gets to be mad in a Parisian house. <laughs> I mean, it does sound like the most pleasant way to be insane. It if does. you are going to be clinically insane. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I know that we, on this podcast, we try to refrain from diagnosing people in history. Yeah. But 
Historians and psychologists do seem to be in agreement about this one, where it's like, he was absolutely a paranoid schizophrenic. Okay. Like, he displays all the symptoms. It is pretty clear that was what was going on with him. And it was probably right to, you know, just quietly take power away from him and just make sure he's comfortable. Yeah. And... But As maybe a, less flammable. Uh, yes, yeah. Well, they they did start thinking more about his safety. I mean, they bricked him up in his house so that he couldn't run in the street. <laughs> oh, cracking, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, the whole event led to greater breakdown in the royal court, uh, leading eventually, as I said, to the king being relegated to a largely ceremonial function and a regency council being set up. And this council continued to reign for the rest of Charles's lifetime, uh, having to deal with the continuing Hundred Years' War, mm-hmm. uh, which did also involve attempts to broker peace through political marriages. And when Charles VI died in October 1422, uh, he was technically succeeded by the infant King Henry VI of England. But in reality, this was passed on instead to Charles VII, who became the official king. So if you look up Henry VI, (laughs) it is disputed king of France. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that is the life of Charles VI, which is, I mean, it's a bit sad, but also just kind of (laughs) wild. It's an extravagant form of madness. Yeah. I think it's the kind of madness that people often imagine like yeah. it's kind of leading up to that gothic miss havisham style madness it really is isn't it it's very divorced from our impression of mental health today because where are my wild extravagant masked balls when i'm feeling depressed eh yeah yeah it really goes away from sort of you know observations that it can be mental illness can be you know very quiet and subtle and everything like that this is this is like Oh, this person's mad in a 90s sitcom or something. Not sitcom. Why would it be a sitcom? Um, (laughs) Frasier. Yeah, Frasier. That would make sense. Someone ringing into Frasier would be like this. (laughs) There's that one character in Frasier who's eccentrically mad, who um, has installed like a fire pole. And Frasier thinks that he's just got a childlike sense of wonder, but it turns out, no, he is (laughs) absolutely dotty. Yeah, absolutely. So it is, in a way, kind of refreshing to have someone who is completely mad in history. Hooray! (laughs) And in a way that is not, you know... Creepy. Creepy and causing him to hurt other people. Like It's not Caligula madness. No, it's not. As is the case with many people with mental health problems, Charles VI was way more of a danger to himself than he was to others. So it's pretty good that he got to, you know, just run around his townhouse thinking that he's St. George. Sure, why not? (laughs) Thank you for listening to That Time When. You can follow us on Twitter at thattimewhen4 and suggest any episodes to us at ttwpod at gmail.com. If you want to help and support us, then the best thing to do at the moment is to give us a five-star rating on your listening app of choice. Thank you, as ever, to Kevin McLeod for our theme song, Anachronist, as well as any other music that Barnaby's used in the pod. And thank you for listening. Now go out, invest in eels, and make sure your wild men costumes are not flammable. Bye! Bye!